0: Welcome to Adoption Unfiltered, a podcast examining various viewpoints of lived adoption experiences. I'm one of your hosts, Sarah Easterly. I'm an adoptee, and I'm joined by Kelsey VanderLeet-Ranyard, a birth parent, and Lori Holden, an adoptive parent. And we invite you to join us as we cover sensitive and timely issues from the perspective of adoptee, birth parent, and adoptive parent. Enjoy today's episode.
1: Today, we are continuing our series, our activist series, and we have a guest here, Greg Luce. Um, Greg is a DC-born adoptee and a Minnesota-based attorney. He's the founder of Adoptee Rights Law Center and the executive director at Adoptees United. Um, He's a passionate advocate for adoptees, and in his work, he helps adult adopted people navigate uh, legal challenges and um, in in obtaining their own original birth certificates, securing US citizenship and seeking information to which they are entitled. He's also working to develop broader legal strategies to challenge existing legal frameworks that operate to deny adopted people basic and fundamental rights of identity. Greg, welcome.
2: Thanks, it's great to be here.
1: Yeah, we're excited. Um, I have we've met just on zoom and just like in close proximity and doing advocacy work. And, um, I first like took notice of Greg's work because we were building adopt change and we were looking at Greg's website being like, this guy is crazy with his maps and they're so interactive and we need this for our issues. And, um, and so we were super impressed with just the content and how, um, how well maintained the website is and how, uh, how active you are in updating all of the, the law changes that are happening around the country and how proactive you are in your advocacy work for open records. Um, and so, so yeah, so I've been a fan <laughs> from afar, but no, thanks, um, yeah. we're in proximity to one another. Um, and so, so yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Um, with Adoptee Rights Law Center.
2: Sure. In Adoptee Rights Law Center, there's two sort of, if you want to call them entities I work for. One is me, basically, and that's Adoptee Rights Law Center. I'm an attorney. Uh, It started out as representing um, domestically born adoptees, mostly born in Minnesota, because that's where I practiced, in getting their um, adoption records, typically the original birth record, but often when you're going to court to get that, I would often ask for the court records as well. And it it grew out of that. In fact, one of my first cases was to help um, annul or vacate an adoption, which is kind of odd. I mean, that's the first big case that I had was in Minnesota, but for the most part, I was working on getting birth records for Minnesota-born adoptees. And from there, it started to grow into other areas, including uh, direct advocacy before legislators.
1: What was the like starting point for you with Adoptee Rights Law Center where um, you first started to take notice of the need for for opening people's records?
2: It it really came out of my own experience and um, being born and adopted in the District of Columbia. And I'm probably a fairly typical adoptee. I didn't really think a ton about my adoption. I did. It was always present as I was growing up. I didn't think a ton more about the depth of it. Until later in life, generally when I had my first son, um, which I think is also typical of many adoptees, they begin to think about their origins at that point when they have someone biologically related to them and who's, you're holding them actually. And so I kind of freaked out at that point. That was when I was around 33 and wanted to know a lot more about who I am and where I came from. I took a trip to D.C., uh, thought I was going to get my records. I thought it would be easy. It turned out it was not easy. It's very expensive. And then I sort of dropped it. Um, but I only dropped that because my birth mother had uh, registered at one of these online registries that used to exist and still exists in some extent. And we happened to uh, to be matched. And that was not long after I would started that um, request to find my records or quest. And We were reunited within a year of my, my son's birth, but she died about six months after that of uh, metastatic breast cancer. She'd been fighting it for about 14 years. And, um, and so, you know, I had to, I I grieved with that. And as adoptees, I think also do, they sort of step away from that space for a while to figure that things out. And I did that. And, I finally came back about 10 or 11 years later and said, okay, I, I'm in a better space now. I'm going to go full on and get my uh, own birth record. And by that time, I had knew, I had known that I actually had a second, a first birth record, um, and it wasn't the one that I had after the adoption. And I think a lot of adoptees sometimes don't realize that they have two. And, and so, you know, obviously by that time I was uh, an know i'd been an attorney for a number of years and i could throw a lot of resources at it for free because i'm just gonna i'm my client own client and i filed extensive briefs and um researched it and um requested everything i requested my birth record i requested the court records i requested the adoption agency records and obviously my mom was already deceased i knew who my father was They wanted to interview him to see if he would consent, and I refused to allow them to do that because I didn't think it was um, his right to have an opinion on whether I get my records or not. And um, so what they ended up doing was uh, redacting his name from all the records, but giving me the adoption agency records and um, uh, a redacted birth record. Even though I knew who he was, I knew his name, didn't matter. I mean, they still redacted it. It's just kind of dumb. You see a little black mark across where you would fill in the name. and um, But I was offended by that. And I thought, you know, I deserve an unredacted birth record. Um, And so I appealed it to the Court of Appeals in D.C. and eventually won my case because they sent it back and essentially ordered the court to release the court records and an unredacted version of my birth record. So that took about four and a half years of my life to do that. Not it's not like I'm it's not like in the movies where I'm fighting in court every day for four and a half years. It's a very slow process, actually. And but it, you know, it was it wasn't until the middle of COVID that I got my original birth record of the mail. And that was an oh incredibly God. meaningful moment for me. So, you know, to sit there in my living room and open the envelope, and my my wife and then my second son was present um there as well. And that's sort of that. I think I've always explained it when I learned, like, for instance, when I found out the name of my birth mother, when um, we were matched on the registry, that was the first time I felt tethered to the earth, meaning that I had in some ways imagined myself floating out there. In fact, I used to imagine my birth parents floating out there as well, and we're all floating. And once I just learned the name, I hadn't met her, I hadn't even seen a picture of her. um, I felt tethered because this person existed in the world and I knew where she lived. Um, so I was um, in many respects now able to walk on the earth and that was similar to when I got my birth record because that was an acknowledgement from the state or in DC that I was born to this person at this place at this time and um, verification that I um, was in this place and was born to this person and so as I was going through all of that for four and a half years or so in court I would say, well, this can't be the way it is across the country. What does everyone else have to do? I thought, you know, this was just unusual, and it wasn't. And as I started to research more and more and look at every state, I was at a point in my life where I could dedicate my life to this work, meaning um, essentially my wife would subsidize what I do, and I would become an attorney who represented um, adult adopted people. And I've been doing that since 2017 now but it's grown into direct advocacy um, in in legislative um, uh, arenas and also representing um, inter-country adoptees who lack U.S. citizenship or don't have proof of U.S. citizenship. So that's the long story, and it's basically motivated by my own experience. I love
1: that visual of being tethered to the earth. I've never heard it put that way, but it, it makes so much sense.
2: Right. It, it's, it was, it was, it's so often so hard to explain. Um, but I think that's the feeling I had.
0: I had recurring nightmares about tornadoes and getting swept away. And I think it's similar where I didn't feel grounded. You know, this mm-hmm. was my childhood recurring nightmare. I just felt like I was swirling around. So I could totally well, relate.
2: I grew right. up in Tornado Alley in Oklahoma, so I I had real fears of tornadoes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I did too. Mine were I was yeah. in Colorado, not quite yeah, like, you, like you had, yeah. but yeah, right. <laughs> they were they yeah. were founded in something real. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So talk to me more about your advocacy work
1: with Adoptees United because you guys are first of all you're absolutely killing the the email newsletters for one. Oh, I awesome! That does that, and I every time we get it, I'm like. Man, we need more staff because these the emails are killing it, and it's so succinct and so um just. That's really a shout out to Shauna. I know I'm pretty sure Shauna does the the newsletters, but you guys are kind of like a well-oiled machine in how you um you're you've got your tentacles in all the states, and your your bill tracking like crazy, and your um, you're putting your people where they need to be for constituent power as well. And so talk to me more about that.
2: It's interesting about the newsletter. I mean, I'll tell you a secret. I do the newsletter. Shonda's name is on it. And sometime, and that became, because sometimes I would, I have resources on my law firm site that would be good in the newsletter. And it didn't make sense to promote my law firm through Adopted United. And so the way it works is I put the newsletter together and then I send it to the board and then the board looks it over and says, okay, looks good. And then we send it out. So that's, that's what we do. But I, I love doing that newsletter. It's good to hear that people read it because I, you never know. And I try to find the most interesting articles that aren't in the mainstream media that have this happy go lucky uh, narrative of, of adoption. There's plenty of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of, I sometimes fear that it, It has more negative stories than positive, but that's just what we find.
1: What area of law were you practicing before you got into adoptee rights?
2: I did. So I did all sorts of stuff. I did employment litigation. I did family law. I did um, landlord-tenant for quite a bit. I would represent um, tenants who were getting evicted. I worked for legal aid. I've never really held a solid job for more than five years because I jumped around wanting to do all sorts of stuff. So Adopt Your Rights Law Center is actually the longest one I've had. Okay. And in there, in that in that whole employment history, I, I ran a nonprofit that organized tenants. And so I think that really shaped how I view um working with people who are um, often marginalized or disenfranchised. Uh, And also how to run a a nonprofit generally. So that all of that kind of went into, I mean, it's like, I was made to do this in some ways and it's my, I feel it's my life's calling. It exhausts me of course. And sometimes it feels, Oh, Oh, um, just consuming all consuming. Um, And so that's where you have to worry about burnout and you have to kind of step away for a little bit or say no to things and say, no, I can't do that. Um, But it is um, very much, was influenced by all sorts of things, including my own experience. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the origin of, of it all.
0: I was going to ask you, Greg, does it feel, do, does each case feel personal in a way?
2: You know, it's hard to answer as an attorney because you're supposed to be this sort of, um, you know, calm and uh, you know, disinterested and you're going to look out for the best interests of your client. I'd say that it, that it motivates me to get, to, to do well because it makes such a big difference to my clients and I also think that it helps a ton that they know that I'm also an adopted person who had issues with whatnot, with records or, or anything else because I think that they just assume that I'm not but when I tell them I am, they understand and I get it. I get, you know, as we all know, you, you get it uh, as an adoptee and you talk to other adoptees, they seem to get it too. And so there's not a lot of things we have to really um, educate each other on um, on our own experiences. And so that is that's really what I like so much about it is to provide that for adoptive people who have been in my shoes before as a client.
1: What is going on with the bills? Can you give us a short synopsis on open bills opportunities um, to get involved?
2: it's so busy right now there's so many bills that are being introduced and are active and it's pretty typical um and i gauge i'm sort of a a super crossword um solver and i do the new york times crossword every day electronically and so last year when i looked back to see what i've done i had zero crosswords done from january through um probably may and then i just have i do them every day after that but because it's so busy there's so many things to keep track of but I'd say that the biggest opportunities, at least for birth records issues that's for getting the original birth record will be to watch Michigan and Georgia I think they may be the two next states they're doing really great work down in Georgia. I'm part of a coalition in Michigan. Um, they've each passed um, one of the chambers one they passed the Senate in Georgia the House in Michigan so getting pretty close in both of those. Um, California is always a huge state it's hard it's a hard state to generally work in because it's so big and so populous and it's also a very restricted state when it comes to original birth records one of the most restricted states in the country and so uh, the adoption attorney industry there is very strong Um, the adoption agency um, industry is very strong and it's very hard to counteract the narrative that they have and the concerns that they believe would happen if they were to release a single piece of paper. So, I'm always optimistic, but very cautious in some of those states. Yeah,
1: um, something's going on in Virginia right now as well, right?
2: Yeah, Virginia, um, like last year, a bill popped out uh, out of nowhere, and we weren't expecting a bill this year either. And suddenly, it popped up again, and so it has gotten through committee. It's ready to go to the House for consideration. But, and this is what's so interesting about this work legislatively, the opposition this time is coming from a number of Democrats. And this is always a non-partisan issue, but it becomes a partisan issue when the parties are just jockeying for power. So in one state, it may be a a Republican-sponsored and pushed bill, like it is in Georgia, and other states it may be democratically controlled and pushed, which it was in Minnesota when they just passed their new law last year. And in Virginia, which is very divided, I mean, the margins between the Democrats and the Republicans are very small. So this is a bill carried by a Republican and the Democrats probably are being not wanting to see success by the other party. And so we get caught up in that because we're not a big issue. It's not a big issue. It's not like abortion. It's not like uh, immigration where you know the parties have their own ideology there is no really ideology on this issue uh, at a party level it's whether they rather they get it and who wants to get in the way of of passing these bills and typically it's the right to life um folks it could be the catholic church um or it could be people who have this mythology of adoption that it should always be closed and always be secret and often it's older, typically older legislators who may have been aware of this closed era, uh, baby scoop era of adoption and feel that that's the norm when in fact it's not the norm. And the reasons they sealed the records aren't the reasons they think it was for.
0: I know there are a lot of adoptive parents who are also um, you know, in, in different lo- legal positions and um, does that factor in as well?
2: I think it goes both ways. I think, as we all know, some adoptive parents are really threatened by um, opening up records and believing maybe, probably erroneously, but maybe um, that their relationship with their children is going to be ruined by allowing this knowledge to be shared and to be available. Um, So you have that threat you have other you have some adoptive parents who are staunch advocates for this right for their own children and so i think it always just comes down to what their belief is about adoption generally and what it means to be an adoptive parent and also how they perceive their child and how autonomous they or independent they allow that child to be really is what it's all about autonomy of the adopted individual and as an adult the autonomy should be in full force yeah so it's interesting i mean in minnesota we had a very strong adoptive parent who was very much behind um the bill and had helped it for um uh, decades at least um staunch ambassador nation member and so you have you certainly have those advocates there i think the same thing in georgia you have some really staunch advocates who are adoptive parents in georgia
3: I think you're spot on about your point on autonomy and how a parents view their child's eventual and ultimate autonomy. But I thought it might be worth having having you speak a little bit about what secrecy was supposed to protect and what it ends up protecting because some of the um, opposition is um, not quite as above board as we might think. Would you? Can you speak to that, Greg?
2: Yeah. So they sealed the records in the first place. I mean, California was the first state they did it. And the reason the legislator said he wanted to pass this law in 1935 was to prevent continued blackmail of adoptive parents, meaning that for some reason, they're going to tell the parents that the kids adopted. So I guess people were you know, obviously hiding their adoptive status from their children at that point. And it became a way to blackmail them through the records that were available on request. So they sealed that in California. But it's always not been about the secrecy and the alleged uh, an anonymity of birth parents is always about trying to strengthen the adoptive family and not um, and perceiving the birth parents as threats to that um, birth that adoptive family to grow strong and so if you've ever talked and you I'm sure you have and one of you is a birth parent ever talked to them uh, the experience at least in the 40s 50s 60s, probably for decades after, was not of an empowering experience to relinquish a child. It was an experience in which you were told to forget about it, to um, you'll never see this child again, to put it behind you, and do not interfere with the, um, the adoptive family now that you're out of the picture. So it was never about this anonymity that arose. Essentially, I see it as a marketing tool for adoption agencies come to us. It's completely anonymous. We'll facilitate the adoption. Um, you can walk away from it and not worry about it ever again, which is a false promise in all sorts of senses. But I think it was a marketing ploy on the part of it, adoption agencies to say that they had this promise of anonymity in the same way that we're seeing with safe haven um, um, laws and now this new um, thread of baby boxes where you could just put it in a box and walk away and and not be affected by it, which as we all know, you are affected by it for life as a one, birth parent.
3: One thing that really, uh, that surprised me that I learned along the way about protecting anonymity of birth parents is that records are not sealed with relinquishment, mm-hmm. right? They're sealed upon adoption, Which, to right. your point of being more adoptive, adoptive parent centered than birth parent privacy centered and adoptee centered.
2: Yeah, that's so true. And we say I've that to Every legislature we say that listen, this isn't about adoption. This is about um, it's about when you it, well the birth record is independent of adoption. It exists outside of adoption. And it's gonna exist for for you know in an archive, and it will be there available as you say, if the if the adoption doesn't occur. So okay, put pressure on the birth bond to relinquish a child for adoption, that transaction is done walk away forget about it but that child may not even actually ever be adopted and so that birth record's there they can get it whenever they want and they can go um search for their birth parents if they choose to do so yeah
1: i also wanted to add um because you mentioned the just the post-war baby scoop era and the um the not empowering experience and i just wanted to give an update On the 2016 experience is still not an empowering experience so i just wanted to clarify that we haven't we while we don't send women away we have not improved the experience and i don't i think by nature it's just not an empowering
2: right right the marketing has changed dramatically Dramatically. Mm -hmm. but the underlying um experience has not Is my understanding it's like now it used to be like shame 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 you need to have this child so you can get rid of the shame and, and live your life. Now it's like brave love. It's all brave. You're being brave by really pushing. And so they've gone at 180 degrees on. It's also a hint of
1: shame though. They can't like help themselves. You know what I mean? They have to like, sort of, they, it's a side dish. The, the same right. shame is still, um, it's kind of a secret ingredient. That yeah.
2: Or fun. like it's redemption is still available. Yes, redemption is very yes. much part of the category. Yeah. Yes to answer Lori's question is, and a lot of people don't know this, and I think it's like in about 18 to 19 states, the decision to even um, have an amended record after the adoption was up to the adoptive parents. They could make that decision. If they didn't want an amended birth record and just would use the decree in the original as the identification um, papers, they could do that. And so even... It wasn't up to the birth parent to insist on anonymity, or they had no power to do that, and it's not possible. But it was um, completely under the control of the adoptive parents to um, seal that record and have it forever sealed.
3: And I also just like to say that transparency overall is a good thing for everybody involved, including adoptive parents, because we know what's going on. And one of the side effects of closed records is hiding bad actors. And I'm not saying all actors in in agencies, ethical agencies are bad are bad. But um, we know that there have been practices that have been hidden by under the ruse of closing records, people can't put pieces together, like adoptive parents can't put pieces together to find out what actually happened and how above board their adoption really was. And I would like to believe that most of them care about that.
2: Right. I, I agree. I think most do care about that. And we've seen that m- most prominently in intercountry adoption. adoption um, when they find out that the children were, or and the birth mother was essentially duped into um, relinquishing a child when they thought the child was just going to go to the United States for an education and then come back. Um, so the cultural, on top of all that is this sort of cultural, um, taking advantage of the cultural um, misunderstanding of what adoption really is. Yeah. And I, I agree with you too. It It is, I think that it's especially years ago and probably continuing, it is a way to hide bad practices. Um, when you're essentially immune from releasing any information and that information is so hard to get. There's an interesting issue that's been, and this is a one that's arisen now in two States that I'd love to get your perspective on this. Um, it first arose in, Vermont, and we dealt with it fairly well, and still got the law passed there. But it's now arising in Michigan, where we have a coalition um, that works to end domestic and sexual violence, and represents women, largely women, um, in that context. And they are right now opposed to our bill because they believe that it um, would lead to uh, disclosure of the woman who was either had, was a survivor of sexual assault or domestic abuse and, um, would lead to trauma, additional trauma because of that. Um, and so, um, obviously what I tell them, especially today, well, we could either have this sort of discreet and very private release of a birth record and the adoptee does what they want with it and nowadays we are also using not in all states but in some a contact reference form that a birth parent can fill out saying i'd like contact or i'd prefer it through an intermediary if we have contact or i don't want contact but if i change my mind i'll file something else and so that is a way of uh, providing agency to the birth mother and mom who's concerned about that issue and um but when i tell them that if we don't have that the use of consumer DNA testing makes it far worse for everybody because you're then using DNA. Increasingly, you'll get a first or second cousin match. You'll have those second cousins, suddenly they have a mystery on their hands and they want to solve it because who doesn't want to solve a genealogical mystery and you're having them asking about who in the family relinquished a child for adoption in 1975 or 1989 or whenever. And the, what was supposed to be um, a fairly private matter, I think it is a private matter when you relinquish a child. I think there is intense need for confidentiality at the time of relinquishment. No one's sitting in that um, room with the social worker listening to the conversation about that decision, nor are we asking for records that document that decision. But um, um That information is then spread across an entire family, as opposed to just being discreetly released on a birth record. And they still don't. They still don't get it. They still want to oppose the bill.
1: And many times also in domestic violence situations, sometimes the abuser is in the family and in the home. And so many times, I mean, so that's not even a rare thing. I mean, that's very common in domestic violence uh, scenarios and so or there can be multiple abusers and so are you giving it through consumer dna are you is this information traveling to the wrong hands you have absolutely no control over the passage of that information and and who comes across it
2: i mean my mom used to run a domestic violence intervention service and i would be in the office sometimes. And she would tell me about death threats that she would get or how how she, it would be directed at her as the director, not even as the survivor of domestic abuse. And so I'm not, I'm certainly aware and very much aware of that issue.
1: Yeah, I, I've been, I, I used to work at an agency um, and I've answered the phone uh, for women in crisis, um, in the aftermath of an immediate um, abusive domestic violence situation and it's um terrifying and heart-wrenching and all of the things to so listen to a woman so desperate and she's pregnant and she's been beaten and and but all of those things don't mean that she doesn't want to be connected with her child and like a contact form would denote that and so um you know these are <laughs> this isn't all one big mess of a situation we can kind of take out the pieces and figure it out it's not so complex that we would have to oppose an open records bill on those grounds
2: right i agree with you completely it's it doesn't provide agency and i believe in empowering people this by opposing it they're going to disempower the people they serve
0: well and also i just think the i mean you can't not talk about the trauma for people of living their entire life not knowing Anything about their child and the outcome, and are they okay? And I would imagine in some of those cases, the decisions are based on helping save a, a child from a really dangerous. Person in the family. And so there's already a a mode of caring and protection that that parent is coming from. And so that doesn't just disappear because the child is not in the home. Like there's, it's very traumatic to stuff grief and all the questions and wondering for a woman. So um, I mean, that's a lifetime I have my birth mother to <laughs> to look at to see what happens. I mean, it, that's a lot of, that's trauma. <laughs> that's more trauma not than not knowing the uncertainty and, and knowing nothing.
2: It's so interesting when you do this advocacy all the time, you begin to realize that adoptees become sort of this vessel for legislators and others to pour their concerns into when it may not even have anything to do with adoption. You're, we're dealing... With different issues here, but they want to, and we're always infantilized as well, because we're we're seen as this needy child that wants their record, and we're seen as people who are going to just willy-nilly go contact their birth mom, no matter what kind of preference may have been recorded on a piece of paper, which has never been my experience with talking with any adopted person, ever. They take it very seriously. There's a real risk of being rejected. There's a real hurt and trauma from being rejected by a birth parent, they're gonna be rejected in a a contact preference form as well. And that's something they're gonna have to deal with. And, um, but yeah, we're vessels to pour these issues into. And if we're constantly having to play whack-a-mole with them all the time, like it's, I'm always amazed at the number of issues that come up when we're all we're requesting is our own birth record.
3: That's a lot of intersectionality. The uh, the mm-hmm. situation that you brought up, and what comes to mind for me, Greg, is um, all will be avail- all will be revealed eventually. You know, exactly whether it's through legitimate or legal means by open records with transparency, or by illegitimate means under the radar through DNA tests, uh, consumer DNA sites, and you know, Susan Ito brought this this point forward in her recent book. Uh, I would meet you anywhere Claudia Corrigan Darcy has mentioned it as well that, you know, if you want this to remain a private matter, make it above board, not below board, because then you have to, you know, people. The reason prohibition didn't work is because people felt like they had a right to beer and wine, which has been with human history throughout recorded history, people feel like they have a right to their earliest Chapters of their lives. That this is not going to go away with legislation. People will find out, find ways to get their answers,
2: right. um, legitimately
3: it, or illegitimately.
2: Exactly, exactly right. If you get a denial, let's say, and your your birth record is not released because in some states that that ability, that power is available to birth parents, that just incentivizes you. That just encourages you to use other tools. And it just happens that DNA currently is a fairly effective and. An expensive tool, but we had tools in the past. Social media, we had private investigators, we had uh, this legendary searcher that you give a wad of cash to, and he had access to microfish. And so that's always existed. And if you had the means to find, you would find out what happened. And that's actually been an interesting, successful argument for some legislators. You say, well, if you have the means, if you are wealthy, you can certainly get your records or find out who it is. And they say, well, that's the legislators, say, well, that's not fair. And then they'll be they'll come over to our side on an issue because of it's just not fair to the little guy. Yeah. You know?
1: In my mind, I just think about, you know, the premise of adoption unfiltered in our book. And um our, our goal is, you know, to bring people together, to work together, because we believe that we're better together and stronger together, um, not to discount our own soul communities because those are life-giving in a lot of ways as well, but um, there's a time and a place to all pull together and work towards a common goal. How do you, um, I guess, envision that, and and what would you like to see um, in that, uh, coming from that going forward?
2: That's a great question. I mean, you could talk about it, the finances, you could talk about it in terms of how do you work together with, especially in the context of your own book with birth parents, adoptive parents and adoptees. I think part of the thing is, I think, let's just say that from the perspective of an adopted person, I think we have to find our own strength first um, before we're strong enough to ally with others. And you have to understand what it means to be an ally, whether I'm an ally to birth parents who want, let's say birth parents want to get the original birth record because they're on it. I mean, I'd certainly ally on that issue um, or adoptive parents want to change in how they can register an intercountry country adoption uh, uh, in the state so it doesn't cost so much because it's kind of ridiculous in some ways where the adoptions already occurred um, overseas. I could certainly ally on something like that, but it's not my issue, uh, not generally my issue, or is it an adoptive person issue? So both finding our own community strength, but using the, that strength to be um, an ally on other issues that aren't fully our issues. And so birth parents, I think, are, are and adoptive parents are natural allies on the original birth record, um, but they have to understand that they are allies and not leaders on that. Yeah. And and it goes to vice versa. So I'm I'll stand by and be an ally to any group that wants to do something that's positive for that group. Yeah. I mean, we, Kelsey, we've talked about, um, you know, some of the federal legislation that's going forward related to regulating unlicensed um, adoption agencies or unlicensed um, facilitators Inter- and yeah. intermediaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's certainly something it doesn't really affect adult adopted people, that's which is really our our group, but it certainly affects um birth parents. And that's something that could be and possibly and adopted parents as well. And it's something that could be an ally on.
1: I think it it affects the adoptees as well. I um I always think about Sarah's story because Sarah was adopted in like what she calls a gray market adoption. Basically, a physician facilitated adoption, you know, in in the Wild West in Montana. And so I think of Sarah's story and and I think about it often with um, my work with the Adopt Act that would prohibit um, these these unlicensed intermediaries, of which includes a physician, um, because I look at the how that piece of Sarah's story has affected her um you know emotional and mental well-being and it's um my child he's going to be eight this year but he's going to be in his 50s one day and he's going to still be affected by the story. so there are children being adopted every day i think i think those issues that's one of the things about you know in this adoption law reform it affects you at some point you know Mm -hmm. uh It may you may not have you may not grasp how it affects you today because you're an infant but one day you won't be um so yeah but i i'm i've loved uh collaborating as much as we've been able to which hasn't been a ton but um it's from what we've you know uh you know spoken about or talked about legislation wise state by state or federal I've enjoyed um, your perspective and your work. And I totally respect everything that Adoptees United and Adoptee Rights Law Center is doing. And so we're really grateful for your work. And if you are an adoptive parent and you're listening and you're like, where do I put my money? (laughs) Here's a place where you could put your money. Um, Tax deductible, yeah. Yeah, tax deductible. And um, I can assure you that it is going to be used in the right way.
2: I, you know, we talked about infinite money, and that is such a limiting having not having that resource of the financial resource to do things is a really limiting factor within the adoptee rights community. Totally. And money is a weird thing in that space, too, because we come from a transaction in many respects that involved money. And so I think adoptees are very wary of money in the space of adoptee rights, but I think we have to get over that. And I think we have to recognize that we're limited in what we can do if we don't have the resources to do it. And that's so I'm wide open about we need to raise money. We need money. We also pay the people that um, who speak at our our events because we feel that's that's something that we need to build in. So that's part of the organization as a whole. Um, but, you know, one federal bill like, everyone should ally on is this kind of crazy bill that you would think we wouldn't need today, but it's called the Adoption Counts Act, in which they would actually start counting adoptees again from private adoptions, because they stopped counting us. And so we have no idea uh, how many adoptees are in the U.S.
1: I did a briefing on that act on um, in the House in November. Gotta go. Great.
2: It seems like a no-brainer, you know?
1: It does seem like a no-brainer. It seems like it should have been a no-brainer in 1975, if you ask me. But yeah, so... Um, no, and, and we're looking for co-sponsors and, um, we, you know, we are also a small organization at Ethical Family Building. So, uh, it's, you know, I am sure you understand when you're spread thin, uh, we've been going all in on the adopt act, um, but adoption counts is something that's still extremely important. Um, it, federal data is the basis of, uh, well, data in general is the basis of policy change in so many ways, because you can walk into um, a representative or a senator's office and say, I need this change. And they say, show me the data. And you're like, well, we don't have any.
2: Exactly. We get that at the state level too, all the time.
1: It's a cycle of, of nothingness because, um, you know, we're just trying to invent uh some some basic level of precedent to go off of and so this is yeah i would say that's one of the most important efforts happening this year is the adoption act so
2: yeah yeah and we all need and you sounds like you need some infinite money as well so yeah yeah (laughs) because that's that's the thing is like i could do we could all do so much more and i'm at absolute capacity um so that i just people ask me to testify and I feel bad I can't yeah. I can't do, I just don't have the time
1: but you know yeah. what though I think that's that speaks volumes to why like working together is so important because we can't do everything like I can't do everything you can't do everything and and constituent power shouldn't be overlooked because it's important and valued especially in an election year And so we should have people around the country that can't go testify. If we can't, um, is it, we're just stronger
3: together. So, yeah, I would just like to make a real quick note to adoptive parents who are wondering why they would want to put their money by behind some of these efforts. One, you want your child to count and two, you want your child to have equal access to their birth records, the way other Americans do in all states. So,
2: right. And I'd say this too. The effort to get citizenship for intercountry adoptees who lack it is incredibly expensive for my clients. Um, I think it should be free. I think this is a clinic that Adoptees United will be forming to represent intercountry adoptees that don't have U.S. citizenship. And I'm been really surprised on the number of clients I have that are estranged from their adoptive parents and don't have their adoptive parents as a resource for that financial hit um and even some that are in good uh, good stead with their adoptive parents but the adoptive parents aren't picking up that cost so i'm just shocked by that actually but yeah we need to have we talk about infinite money that's where i put a big chunk of it to get rid of this issue of uh, lack of citizenship
1: do you foresee the adoptee citizenship act coming back anytime
2: i you know it's so it's obviously it's federal level it's immigration
1: mm-hmm. it's a
2: divided house and senate
1: and we've a good gotta, topic right now
2: yeah and so immigration is something that they'll they'll only talk about the border or they'll talk about asylum um, or both and they're not talking about a path to citizenship for anyone and it's not going to happen at least in 2024 and then we'll have to see who's uh, standing in um next year for, um to be the next president and can and so one of that, you
3: say in like one or two sentences what this means for adoptees who's who don't who were brought in through intercountry adoption and don't have citizenship how could that have happened
2: so it happened because it um it affects for the most part older adopted people who were essentially under or over 18 in 2001 when this new law um now an old law went into effect and so for the older adoptees, there was no such thing as acquired or what's called automatic citizenship once that adoption was finalized. And so th- their parents had to um, get them naturalized. And if they didn't get them naturalized, they've been going through the world as a legal permanent resident. Basically, you have a green card. And many have voted. Um, some have uh, committed a crime. And because of one of those issues, typically, they may not be eligible to naturalize. And so they're sort of stuck in this limbo and I have clients that are sort of just staying low and don't want to come to the attention of anyone. Um, But it, it affected largely older adopted people who were born before 1983 whose parents did not get them naturalized
3: so we're seeing people being deported back to a country they don't know to a language they don't speak because of something that their adoptive parents maybe didn't know needed to happen when that law changed in 2001 after right. 9-11 and um and now there's no re- legal recourse they they get on the right. radar and they can't get a passport right. can't um
2: right. yeah and it's, yeah and so my what i do is i represent those adaptees in all sorts of different situations some don't even have a green card but the ones that have a green card and don't have these um, factors like voting or criminal conviction, I will help them naturalize. I'll represent them to naturalize. Um, I would love to see a fund available to uh, adoptees, uh, inter-country adoptees that could tap into that because it's it's just the, the filing fee itself to naturalize is $725. I'm doing the work for free, but if they're to pay an attorney, that's probably at least another $1,500 to $2,000. And so it's very expensive and they just don't do it. They may not have the means to do it. Yeah. So Adoptee Citizenship Act, maybe in 2025, it just depends upon, you know, what happens in 2024. But I don't see it happening currently.
1: Okay. Interesting. Yeah. We'll keep tabs on that. Um, Any concluding thoughts? Any last um uh, thoughts about anything you want to give a I don't know a shout out to uh to pay attention to or wrap up thoughts
2: well I would um certainly tell people and I've been telling people a lot to pay attention to these baby box bills they mm-hmm. are crazy and they are spreading like wildfire I'm shocked to see one now in Washington State I'm shocked oh. to see one now in New Hampshire um and this is sort of uh the baby scoop era through an incubator, um, in the wall of a, of a fire station. And so if we don't, um, understand this and understand what it means and what it's really not addressing, then we're going to, you know, five years from now, there's going to be a baby box in every fire station and it's going to, it's going to lead to one thing. It will lead to more abandonments of children, not for any good purpose.
1: The Washington state, it's a bill right now, right? It's not passed.
2: Right. It's a bill. It's in the House.
1: Sarah, that's you. So you're on. I it, know. Right? I have to get you're on that. On I know. I'm very I'll talk concerned to you about, about it. Because about there's you. a
2: small group of adoptees there. Finally, where we might have to, will be activated on this bill. Okay. Well, well
0: let's connect yeah. about it. We had, yeah.
1: a, um, we had a book tour event in um, Seattle and then on Vashon Island out in Washington. And Vashon was a very small event. And we didn't know anyone really there except for a couple people that Sarah knew and her family. But um, all of a sudden, like the the library, the small library room that we had filled up and everybody, we had everybody introduce themselves because it was an intimate event and they were all adoptees <laughs> and Sarah didn't know. And they were all these adoptees. And we were like, oh, put your name on an email here because now you guys are going to start an adoptee group on Vashon Island. so. I think they need to mobilize, Sarah. Well, yeah. we are. I've already,
0: I just got, I just got, oh, everything okay. is all, I didn't even tell you this today when I met, we met earlier, but I am officially the facilitator of Adoptees Connect fashion Island. <laughs>
2: That's uh, awesome.
0: So, yeah, it's really awesome. So our first meeting is in a few weeks. And um, I think I've got someone to co-facilitate with me, another adoptee. And we have someone very passionate about legislation who came to the event too, Bastard She's Nation. Bastard Nation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Was so that Mara? Mm, no oh. um
2: because she's the she's
1: we better not she is her. the leader on the opposition <laughs> oh, yeah, to we this shouldn't, we, shouldn't. we won't hear yes, her yes oh yeah yeah <laughs> that's fine it yeah. marley i know marley it wasn't it was somebody i don't want to name her though that's fine I, yeah i don't want to but um, but it was exciting so anyway yeah, all i'm saying is awesome. yes we can mobilize we we have some maybe people. you guys maybe. can do a letter writing event in your first <laughs> oh sarah
2: i'll reach out to we'll get in contact with um the other um, two adoptees that are involved in this as well. Okay, that's and, awesome. And are connected to the legislature too, which is really good.
0: That's or good. You con- know, con-
2: connected to that process.
0: I would love that. I would really love that. And I just adopted through Adoptee Voices. We just supported two bills, Michigan and um, I think Georgia. I think. Oh, that, that's
2: right. You wrote a letter yeah. from Michigan. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, we did. And and that I have to admit, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but that was my first kind of foray into any any adoptee rights work, and so. I think it just always has seemed really legal and daunting, and so I would love to ask you, Greg. Like for adoptees who care, we care, but it feels really daunting. What, um, you know, what are the best ways to get involved? Is it just, so,
2: to yeah? I think it's with. Um, I would I would try to get involved with Adoptees United because as these things pop up, we we have a, a large database now that we would send out. Say, hey, there's a bill in your state. And this is a group that's in your state you may want to uh, align with. Um, That's one way. But you're a storyteller, and that's really what testifying is about. That's really what it's about to meet with legislators. You're telling a story. You have to, I mean, in that context, you have to be extremely brief. But it is, the stories are what that matters. And and, And Kelsey mentioned constituent power, and that still is a very powerful thing. Constituent power really drives especially in this um, issue, let's say it's the original birth record issue in that issue where no one really knows about it. And they're often surprised that, Whoa, you have two birth certificates and you can't get your original one. It's those stories that matter so much in that. And they meet people who are affected by it and who are constituents and they can actually do something about it. So it's um, it is daunting. I agree with that. I mean, I didn't start really lobbying at the at capitals and for, and, maybe two years ago was when i first started doing that and it's it's you get nervous and you think you know everything's on the line when in fact the they're per their people too those legislators and they just want to um hear your story and and see what they can contribute if they can so yeah keep at it and the letters are really useful as well
3: before we close i want to back up to the issue of the baby boxes because that's so important Mm -hmm. Um, I think we need to do another whole episode about it to flesh that out. We kind of threw that in, uh, when we're almost out of time, we will put in the show notes on this episode when we have a new episode that explores that. So just check the show notes. If you've, if you're watching this a bit
2: later, great. Thank you.
1: Greg, we're so grateful that you came on to talk to us and, um, we'll be keeping you know, up on your work and the work of Adoptees United. And so, yeah, thank you
3: so much. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, rate, and share wherever you listen to help others find Adoption Unfiltered. It's through healthy engagement that we can make the changes needed for all those affected by adoption. Visit adoptionunfiltered.com for other episodes and more information about our other projects, including our brand new book, Adoption Unfiltered.